Well, we come this morning to one of the most precious passages in all of Scripture, in my opinion. Um, it's uh, we are moving. We have moved into the really the the climax of the Book of Revelation, and uh, from here on in, everything is pretty spectacular. And uh, we have we have gone through a lot of um, a lot of territory so far in our study this year through Revelation, um, and there's a lot of that we've learned and a lot that we've struggled with, and now it's time for all that to come to fruition in the last visions of this wonderful book. We've been introduced to two women in the book of Revelation, just like the two women of the book of Proverbs. One of the women represents all the sinful pleasures and temptations of the world. The other represents the people of God, the bride of Christ, the church. One has a cup full of abominations. The other is robed in the righteous acts of the saints. Back in Revelation 18, the chapter before, the one we're in today, in the description of the fall of Babylon, the great prostitute, we read in 18.23 that human life would be so devastated that on earth there would no longer be the voice of bridegroom and bride. But now in the first part, now in Revelation, we saw the first part of it being the saints' worshipful celebration in response to God's destruction of the great prostitute. But in today's passage, all this evolves into a great celebration of what is happening to another woman, the bride of Christ. Finally, she her wedding day has arrived. Today we talk about the marriage supper of the Lamb to his bride in 19.7 through 10. Now last week we covered up to 19.6. But today's section begins in the middle of a quote. And so it doesn't seem wise to, in our reading, to start in the middle of a quote. So we're going to start at the beginning of 6, but we're going to focus on 7 to 10. So Revelation 19, 6 to 10. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude like the roar of many waters and the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this. Bless 
Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. And then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So we're going to walk through this verse by verse and just uh, talk about what it's saying and what it means. So verses verses 7 and the first half of verse 8. Let us rejoice and exalt, which is the same thing as let us rejoice and be glad. It's the the, uh, different ways of translating that, but it's the same exact in the Greek. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. So the opening words of this verse, let us rejoice and be glad, are found in two other places in Scripture both of which are especially relevant to this passage. And as I've said before, the book of Revelation is written with ref- which sort of cross-references many other passages of Scripture and in doing so calls our attention to go to those places and read them and look at them in order to enrich our Understanding of what is being said to us in Revelation. So here again, this let us rejoice and be glad. Used twice. First of all, in Psalm 118, verses 22 to 24. And this is that passage that I think most of us are familiar with, where God says that the stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. So the concept here is that Jesus, though he was perfect, when people tried to to build upon it, when mankind tried to build something, like think of the Tower of Babel, when they're trying to build something, they didn't build upon the stone that God had given, the perfect cornerstone. Rather, they threw that aside and they built their own building. But... The stone that the builders rejected, God pulled out of the trash heap and he used it to be the chief cornerstone of the glorious building that he's building. And so, rejoice and be glad, it says. And that is behind this in our passage as well. The other place where this is used is when Jesus says in the Beatitudes... Blessed are you when you're persecuted and, and, uh, and people speak evil of you falsely. It says, rejoice and be glad. For your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So here, you know, this sort of summarizes so many things that are in the New Testament. That, you know, when you're experiencing difficulty when you're experiencing persecution you should be glad because 
That's the way they treated the best of people in the past. And of course, the best of the best is Jesus himself. So here it is. Rejoice and be glad. And finally, now in this vision of the marriage supper of the Lamb, all this is coming to fruition. This is the moment that you were rejoicing and being glad for because this is the moment of reward. This is the moment of relief. This is the moment of rest. This is the moment of glory that's come with the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now it's interesting that God has chosen to use here, connect marriage and the, uh, and the relationship between Christ and his church. This is one of the central images in the whole Bible where, where human marriage is a reflection of the marriage between God and his people. This is really why God created marriage in the first place. This isn't just a connection that, that God found useful, but he created it this way. You see, Jesus came to earth. He gave up his life in order to win himself a bride. He had all honor and glory as God and yet he became a man and he lived a life of humiliation and servanthood. And eventually he died on a Roman cross, a shameful criminal's death. Even though he was sinless, he willingly took upon himself the punishment for sin that his people deserved. He gave up his honor, he gave up his blood in order to purchase a people to be his own. A people who would be called by his name. A people who would love him and believe in him, honor him and obey him. A people to be his bride. And one day, at the end of history, this glorious union is going to be finalized. And that's what this vision is before us today. In all the human love stories, both fictional and the ones that are true, are designed by the Creator to give us a glimpse of the beauty and the ecstasy, the romance and devotion, the passion and the satisfaction of Christ and His people, the two becoming one on that day. It will be the ultimate happily ever after with the one you love forever. This is what Paul's talking about in Ephesians 5 when he says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that it, she might be holy and without blemish. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, but I'm saying that it refers to Christ and his church. Now here in 1907, the wedding announcement has come. After so much waiting, the time has arrived. The marriage of the Lamb to his bride is here. 
And it says in the end of 7 and, the, and in 8, His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. So just like an earthly wedding, the bride of Christ works hard to make herself uh, ready for the day. She chooses a beautiful dress. She has her hair done just so. And, and uh, you know, probably no woman, in general, there's no woman that spends... that. There's no time in a woman's life when she spends more time and effort making sure her hair is ready than on the day of her wedding. Hours often are go into that day, that presentation. She puts on her makeup. She even often, you know, maybe the one time in her life that she asks some other person to put on her makeup for her instead of doing it herself. Um... And notice the tension here. She makes herself ready on the one hand, but it also says it was granted her to do this. You see, um, the first place is the emphasis on the bride's responsibility to make herself ready. But the second puts the emphasis on God's gift to enable her to make herself ready. It reminds us of Philippians 2, 12 to 13, the same tension that we see there, where it says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work within you, giving you the ability and the power to achieve his purpose. Both of these are here. And then it goes on in the last part of verse 8. For the fine linen, after it says it was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, it says, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Now, in the book of Revelation, there are a number of places where believers are said to be clothed in white robes. For instance, in Revelation 7.14, it says the saints have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. But here in the context of the bride being presented to her Lord on the day of the great wedding, apparently part of her adornment as the bride of Christ is her righteous deeds. In much the same way that Ephesians 5 talks about her being presented before Christ without blemish. Now the translation here is difficult. There are other things it might refer to. But if this is the right interpretation, if on her wedding day she is adorned with the many righteous deeds done by all the saints down through history, sure... Surely these deeds have been purified by the Savior, by the Mediator. It reminds me of the story of the little girl who went out into the field and, and picked flowers for her mom and brought them in and presented them to her mom and uh, said, I picked them myself. 
But the mother receiving these gifts is like, these gifts, this is, how could you possibly have done that? She just couldn't believe her daughter because this was a beautiful bouquet of flowers. She didn't know that her husband had um, taken in between, taken the flowers that the girl had gathered and pulled out all the grass and the, and the weeds and, and arranged them and all the dead flowers and, all, and arranged them in a way that really did look beautiful before it was presented. And that's really the way it is with us. You know, if, if our, our works in themselves are so stained and polluted and mixed, but the fact is that Christ purifies our works in order that they might be presented to the Father in, uh, in, and, and be beautiful in the, in the moment. And it certainly is true that our deeds will be with us for all eternity, which is an awesome thought. Then in verse 9 and 10, And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. And then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So the angel commands John to write down. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Here the picture changes a little bit. You see, uh, whereas the bride represented the corporate church, now suddenly the individual believers, the individual members of the church are portrayed as those who have been invited to the wedding celebration. It's really very similar to what happens in chapter 12, if you remember, where the woman in that chapter portrays the church but her seed, her children, portray individual members of the church. This word also, this word invited here, is actually the word called. And it underlines God's sovereign role in salvation. The calling here is choosing. It's a factual calling. Like when God called Lazarus to come forth from the tomb. Lazarus, come out! He wasn't making an offer to Lazarus. He was commanding that Lazarus come out. And he came out. And so it is that we are called. We are chosen. Blessed are the, those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. That reminds us a little bit of when Jesus says in Matthew 13, Blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears that they hear. For truly many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. And, and this is uh, something that is um, so important that, that, and it's so easy to pass by this that God doesn't just leave it there and move on. Um, he, he then says, 
And he says to me, and the angel said to me, these are the true words of God. So stop before you move on to the next sentence. Realize the importance and significance and enormity of what I just said. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Amen. This is, this is like him repeating himself or saying, what I just said, don't you realize it's absolutely true. You see, we are so blessed, but we are so often unimpressed by how blessed we are. The fact is, this invitation, this fact that we've been invited to this wedding is enough reason to live a whole life full of joy. And we have to ask the Lord to forgive us that it doesn't carry enough weight in our own hearts like it deserves to carry. It's similar to something that happens two chapters in farther down in 21.5 when John says to, when God says to John write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. And so John obeys and he writes these things down for us and what a blessing it is that we have these words. For he, the words of God are trustworthy and true. The words about the wedding supper of the Lamb are trustworthy and true. The words about how blessed are those who are invited to be a part of this are trustworthy and true and glorious. In fact, it's so wonderful that it tempts John to worship the angel who's delivering the message. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. You see, these truths are so magnificent that godly and knowledgeable men have trouble holding themselves back from worshiping the one who announces them. The temptation of the hearer of God's word is sometimes to worship the messenger. They shouldn't, of course, but that's how beautiful the message of the word of God is. And then finally, it ends with, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Now, there is no punctuation in the Greek manuscripts that the ancient Greek manuscripts that we have. And there wasn't in the original ones. They didn't use punctuation back then. You had to figure out what the proper meaning of each thing was. So there was no periods and no commas and no question marks and no exclamation marks and no quotation marks. These are all added into our translation by the translator trying to help us to see what they think is meant in these verses. So the fact is we don't know where the quote ends of what the angel says to John. We don't know whether it includes this last sentence about the testimony of Jesus. It could be spoken by the angel to John, or it could be spoken by John to us. But it doesn't really matter. The point is the same. 
The truths which Jesus has given to us come through prophets, come through messengers. Oh, every once in a while God speaks directly out of heaven, but that's not the pattern. It's very rare. Generally, God's message comes to us through messengers, through prophets. And you know what a prophet is. A prophet is a messenger, it's a spokesman. Someone who takes, who God gives a message to for the purpose of him delivering it to others. And that's the way that we receive God's messages. That's almost the entire scripture. In fact, the entire scripture is, is a report from a messenger of God to us. Even the parts that tell us what God said directly came through a messenger that tells us about it. Um, usually, we use the word prophet. You know, the Bible, when it uses the word prophet, it's using it in an exalted way, you know, to show how important or significant a person is. Um, but in this case, it's actually uh, diminishing a prophet because it's because you see, when you compare a prophet to a normal person, a prophet's exalted. You pair, compare a prophet to God, <laughs> oh, prophet's down on the uh, down with us. And so, uh, basically, the point is here, those giving testimony to Jesus are prophetic. They're prophetic people. So don't worship them. John was tempted to worship them, and I think that, you know, it fits in very well here. He falls down, he worships, no, don't worship me, because I'm just a prophet like you. And that's, the word angel means messenger. And that's what they're there for. They're delivering messages. That not entirely. They do other things as well. But they deliver messages to us. Like, like Gabriel did to, to Mary and to uh, Zechariah. And so it is that uh, um, the angel sort of rebukes John for worshiping. And reminds him that these words, the, the, the words may be divine. The message may be divine, and it is. But the messenger is not. So don't worship the messenger. Don't make such a big deal about the messenger. Just about the message. Revelation 19.7 tells us that the bride of Christ makes herself ready and puts on white garments. Now this implies that she wasn't ready before. That she didn't have the right garments on before. And this is consistent with what we, I just read in Ephesians chapter 5, which talked about how the Lord sanctifies the bride and cleanses her by the washing of the water, of water with the word, so that he might present her the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. The point is that that's then but now the church has blemishes has wrinkles has spots, needs cleansing. That's the reality we live in today. We're talking about the end, the, the grand finale when the church has been prepared and appears before Christ in glory and splendor. But, but that's not the now. 
Right now, we live in a, in a world where the church has plenty of weaknesses, even errors, plenty of things that we, we shake our heads over and we're embarrassed by. Even in our own role. You know, you've heard, uh, I think it was Billy Graham who first said, uh, if you, you know, you can't, don't look for the perfect church and if you ever find the perfect church, don't join it because you'll ruin it. And the fact is, each of us is, has blemishes. And so when we are part of the church, we add to the blemishes of the church. And that's just the way things are. Remember, early in the book of Revelation, the letters to the seven churches about the sad state of so many of these churches. You know, the church of Ephesus had abandoned their first love for Christ. Pergamum and Thyatira were putting up with false teaching, including teaching which encouraged sexual immorality. Sardis had a reputation for being alive, but the fact was they were dead inside. Laodicea was lukewarm and made Jesus want to vomit. This was the church then. And now we've gotten coming to the end of the book of Revelation and we see where the church is going to be, where it's going. It reminds me of that poem, to dwell above with the saints in love, that will be glory. But to dwell below with the saints, I know that's a different story. And that's just the way things are. That's the way God has chosen for us to live. Sure, we shouldn't be the way we are, but we are. We're sinners. We're broken people that God is, by His grace, is restoring. But we still have spots and blemishes. We're going to spend eternity with some people we didn't like. We're going to spend eternity with some people who hurt us. We're going to spend eternity with some people who didn't respect us, who didn't agree with us, who didn't like us, who didn't treat us very well. In the end of the movie Places of the Heart, which is a movie about a community of people. It's not a Christian movie, but it's back in the times when, you know, pretty much everybody considered themselves a Christian. Everybody went to church. Probably the, the uh, first half of the, of the 20th century. And, uh, you know, the people in the story, they hurt each other. They, uh, and there's, there's uh, sad things that happen that, that are um, tragic and, and they, they fail each other. But in the last scene, it takes a while to figure out what's going on because they're in church and there's a communion plate that's being passed down the row. And one after the other person takes it and suddenly a person takes it who was the enemy of the person who's handing it to him. And he's going, what? What's this about? And then they pass it to the next person and the next person is a person who died earlier in the movie. And suddenly you realize, ah, this last scene is about heaven. This is, we've gone beyond just this. And there's this beautiful picture of the saints, you know, in heaven, passing, having communion together, even.
even though they've hurt each other, even though you know, they were so tarnished in the way that they lived their lives with each other. But the church is not defined by her blemishes. The church is defined by her destiny. By what she will become. That's the point of this. The biggest thing about her, the church is not her ugly spots. The biggest thing about the church is how she is loved by Christ. And how Christ has an agenda to turn her into something beautiful, reflecting his glory. So many people stay away from church because of all the blemishes. And it's understandable. But they forget how much Christ loves his church. So much that he died for her sins. And that brings us to the next point, And that's that the church is fixable. She can't fix herself. And we certainly can't fix ourselves or each other or the church. God's people are only fixable because the all-powerful Jesus loves his church. And one of the main tools that he uses to fix his church, strangely, is trouble and opposition. Now here is a shocking thought. The existence of Babylon, the great prostitute, served as a necessary preparation for the bride's marriage supper of the Lamb. The oppression of Babylon the temptation of the great prostitute. These are the fire that God uses to refine the faith of his people in order to prepare them for this great wedding celebration so that they might become pure and presentable before him. It's so easy for us to view our pain as an undesired obstacle to be removed instead of seeing that God has placed these things in our lives to bring forth his character in us in the face of our sufferings. Our earthly comfort isn't what's important, you see. What's important is Christ being formed in us that we might be prepared for a new life, a new place, a new day. The fact that God detests the wickedness of Babylon in the book of Revelation and that he will certainly judge it does not prevent him from using it to accomplish his good purposes in the lives of his people. You know, um, it used to be very common that young women were very eager to get married as soon as they were of that age, and even before. And you would hear them talking, I mean, it's still in movies, you see it, old movies. (laughs) 
their conversations were about who they liked or who liked them or and that kind of thing. And yet today, many more women are, be, are content to be, uh, they're committed to being content without a man. Well, I hope that you, that we all long to be married to Jesus. Whatever our feelings are about marriage in this life, may we long to be married to Jesus. May we long for this day that is depicted in this passage in Revelation 19. May we dream of that day of being presented to Jesus without spot or blemish. If you do desire that, then you'll want to be preparing yourself now. Just like an engaged couple prepares itself, prepare themselves for their wedding. And yes, there are lots of things to, to worry about, but the most important thing, when you have a couple that are looking forward to their wedding day, the most important preparation is a relational preparation between the two. You know, there's, there's, bad, there's bad things that each one brings, bad habits, bad baggage, and, and you need to work these things out so that these things aren't thorns in your marriage and constantly causing friction and problems. Someone shuts out the other and needs to learn to open up and, and draw close to the other. And this is something that you need to work on. And so it is with us with Christ as well. In this age, we are supposed to be preparing ourselves. And we remember what Jesus said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and sup with him and he with me. It reminds me of, of you know, when, when my wife and I were in our courting phase, we had lots of conflicts and lots of times where we were trying to work on our relationship, constantly pulling, you know, often pulling off from the rest of the group to try to talk things through and stuff. And, uh, you know, it's just like a young couple that, that someone has slammed the door and somebody else is outside knocking and wanting to come back in. And, well, that's the way it is with Jesus. We need to be investing in our relationship with Jesus so that we are drawing close to him and dealing with him and opening ourselves up to him and letting him draw close to us. That's what he wants. The thing that's different about our relationship with Jesus is that it's never his fault when we have relational problems. It's always our fault. Now that's maybe difficult on the pride, but it it's actually makes it easier to figure out what the problem is. Because you don't have to, you know, my wife and I, I think we spent three years of our lives trying to analyze whose fault something was in our relationship. You can avoid all that. It's all clear. It's our fault and not Jesus' fault in our relationship with him. And so it's a beautiful thing that God gives us time to prepare ourselves to, uh, to be married, to enter into this beautiful 
union that is in our future. And as we come to the Lord's Supper this morning, and as we focus our um, attention on on that, you know, this, in some ways, this uh, this sacrament that Christ has instituted and given to us is is like a rehearsal, a wedding rehearsal. This is, we have a great feast that's before us, this great wedding feast, but now we have this little verse where we're going through the motions to to prepare. And, and that's even what, Jesus, what is said in the scriptures, isn't it? When it tells us, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. And Jesus himself said, I won't eat this with you again until I return. So it's going to happen again in a full, complete way. This is just a rehearsal. That's why it's so small at a wedding rehearsal. Um, do, the, do you spend $1,000 on a beautiful bouquet to walk down the aisle in, in the rehearsal? No, you take the bows of your of the presents that were, um, at least this is what a lot of people do, take the bows of the presents that were given to you at, at a shower and you put them all together and that's your, your fake bouquet when you're, you're at the rehearsal. It's, it's nothing like the reality. It's still got a little bit of beauty to it, yes, but it's nothing like the reality. And so it is that, you know, we eat, we get a little taste of something uh, helpful and tasty and beautiful, but it's nothing compared to what is to come. And so it is with the Lord's Supper and the bread and the wine that we partake of. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this magnificent vision given to us of the wedding of Christ with his bride. And dear Lord, we know that there's nothing in this whole world, there's nothing in our lives that is more precious and more significant than that day that is coming. And dear Lord, we ask your forgiveness for all the ways that we get wrapped up in things that are just not important. And, uh, and we forget the very valuable things. Thank you that you call us, even in this passage, to stop and pay attention and let the weight of this be felt in our own hearts. We pray that you would allow us to do that right now, O Lord, through the sacrament. As this sacrament we uh, today becomes a, a reminder of what is in store for us. Today, O Lord, we're, we're covered with many blemishes and and. Only because of your forgiveness do we even know that, that we can stand before you, dear Lord. We thank you that one day you will remove all of our blemishes. And that, you will, that we will stand before you clean and holy. Our sins in the past forgiven and our sins in the present and future non-existent. And Lord, we thank you that you... You love us even now in our present state and pray that you would help us to hunger and long for that day when we will see you face to face and there'll be no more veil 
and we will behold our bridegroom and be melted and be transformed by that vision. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.